0: Welcome to the BC Messenger. This is the March 2023 episode of the BC Messenger, and we are so glad you've joined us. My name is Steve Hall, and I'm here with my wife, Jennifer, as usual. And this is episode number eight. And here we are, and we're in a new location.
1: Yes, Uh, we have moved. We've moved. We are actually still in the process of moving I'm sure many of our listeners have gone through this, uh, probably most, if not all of us have in our life, gone through a move, and it seems like it never
0: ends. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff that you realize that you have over the years, and we didn't move far. We're still in the same town we were before, but we just moved to a different location in the same town, and so our studio has moved, and you're, you are hearing us come from a, a totally different location than we did before. So if you listen to it this time and you were wondering a second ago, boy, they sound so good. They just really are right. Now you know the reason. (laughs) We have a new little studio. It's a little studio. It's it's, Hey, that's
1: all you need to get out a big uh, message from a real studio.
0: That's right. So we're we're glad to be with you and so glad you have joined us here today. Yes,
1: and we're glad to have a reason to pause between boxes and sit down and chat with you here again for another month.
0: That's right. The BC Messenger is real science Real Bible, real history, and real world.
1: You know, as I was thinking about that byline, as you give it, at the beginning of each of our episodes, Right. and that might be a little shocking, a little surprising to hear real science, real Bible, side by side there. We do have such a rigid dichotomy that has developed in our world today between those two things.
0: Right. And, you know, I don't think anybody would disagree that science has fallen into disrepute in some segments of Christianity in recent decades, but science really itself is just knowledge. It's just knowledge about our world, about the world that God has made, and we should not be afraid of it. We should not mock it. We shouldn't sideline it. Indeed, we must not. And the other side of that coin is, likewise, the Bible has fallen into disrepute in many segments of our world today. Here at The Biblical Chronologist, we know that the Bible itself is a historical record. It's a treasure trove of ancient history. It's a record of God's works in God's world. So we should not sideline it, ignore it, or contort it. And indeed, we must not.
1: Here you will find a refreshing simplicity even as we grow and learn in our human struggle to comprehend. And as we take a high view of both God's world and God's word, we continue to see them come into beautiful harmony. So here's what we have for you in our monthly roundup on today's podcast. Our main topic for discussion here is going to be addressing some questions along the lines of faith versus reason and And the natural versus the supernatural and how to think properly about those things as a Christian, as a Bible believer. And then following that discussion, we have two brief research updates for you that are very interesting. Aging 101 coming right up after that with Lesson 4. And uh, then we have a testimonial from a couple who are 46 years old sharing about their experience with the vitamins Um, the anti-aging vitamins, of course. And then closing out, we will have Helen's view as she shares some details from their day-to-day life.
0: Well, is it right for Christians to look for evidence of God's works in history? Is it right to do this? Um, Should we not just take the Bible by faith?
1: This is the question that we, last month, at right. the end of the episode, said we were going to be addressing Correct. this month, and one of our listeners wrote in and said that he would word it like this, is it right for Christians to seek scientific explanations for things that God has done, such as the flood and manna? Right. So we've added that in as another question.
0: That's right, and we do get these questions from time to time, and I'm sure many of you do as well, and maybe you've thought this before in your own mind. And uh, the first question is one of faith versus reason. How do faith and reason work in the life of a Christian? Should it be all one and none of the other? I mean, should it really be? Does God expect his people to say, I just want you to believe what I have said, and you know, don't worry about reason? Don't don't worry about any kind of, of proof, but just believe, you know, or is it just all about logic and reason and throw faith out the window? Should it be all one or should it be none of the other? The second question brings up the question of the natural versus the supernatural. Can things that appear to be or have been supernatural actually have a natural, a scientific explanation? Is that robbing God of his glory when we are able to find in the real world a scientific explanation of something that maybe we previously thought was a miracle, supernatural?
1: Right. So we're going to move through some various material today as we consider these questions. These are good questions and big questions, and we need to think properly about these things as Christians. So we're going to offer you quite a few different points today, so we won't be able to dwell on any of them. Right. Uh, we'll give you scripture references and places you can go to follow up and, and study more yourself, but we want to give you uh, just some food for thought right. as we explore these questions.
0: Always want to <clears throat> encourage you to go explore our website, get the books, the, the PDFs to download and get into more of the details, but... First of all, let's talk about faith and reason. Is it right for Christians to look for evidence of God's works in history, or should we just take the Bible, quote, by faith? Now, when we say God's works in history, what are we talking about? Of course, we're talking about events recorded in the Scripture, some of which we've already discussed on our podcast here, events such as Noah's flood, the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, Um, manna produced in the wilderness, which we, we will get into more in a little bit, as Jennifer said, the walls of Jericho, and of course on down through history to King David, to the prophets, to even to Jesus Christ himself. Most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Should we examine history? And should we utilize the disciplines of science to verify the historicity of these events? Or do these kinds of activities that show that we really don't have enough faith to believe? You just need to believe.
1: Right. Does it mean if I'm looking for evidence and I'm looking for confirmation, does that mean that I'm lacking in faith and I'm not strong enough in my faith?
0: Right. So let's start with two pretty well-known scriptures. The first one is Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. It says, "And "...without faith it is impossible to please him, for the one who comes to God must believe that he exists." that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. Now, that passage of Scripture makes it pretty plain that God does require faith. And, of course, anyone who knows the Scripture and anyone who knows the truth of the Word of God readily agrees with that. God requires faith, and right. Hebrews eleven six 6 demonstrates Without
1: that. faith, it is impossible to right. please him. So we know that that is a fundamental teaching, biblically. Definitely. Salvation
0: is by faith, right? We
1: must come to God in faith.
0: By grace are you saved through faith, not not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. We understand that from the scriptures, no doubt. Well, let's go to another scripture. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. Another version would say, give an answer to everyone, who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. Now, that passage makes it pretty plain that we need to be able to give a reason, to give a defense for our faith. You know,
1: we see little decorative sayings and signs all over the place today with words on them like faith and believe and just believe. But we have to ask the question, of course— uh, faith in what? And what are we supposed to believe? And of course, the Christian is going to answer and say, well, we need to believe the Bible and we need to have faith in Jehovah God. But it doesn't really take long to get down to the question of, well, why? I mean, why have you chosen that particular holy book and, and that God, Jehovah? What is your reason for choosing them as the object of your faith. And if we can't answer that question, uh, we're not giving a reason and a defense for the hope that lies within us, uh, because we don't have anything to demonstrate the truth of what we believe. We need to have a basis to be able to say, what I believe is based on truth, what I believe is truth, and what others believe is false. So we begin to see that faith and reason must go hand in hand.
0: Right. It's easy to grow up in your faith. It's easy to have always believed what you believe and not think about, what, what, what about a person coming out of another religion? What, what about a person who's always been taught something completely different from what you've been taught? And they have great faith as well. But their faith is in something completely different. Well, so you're right. The question then is, why? We Why need do to I have, choose your faith over my faith?
1: We need to have a way to differentiate between truth and falsity.
0: Right. So what makes true things true? There's a question.
1: Yeah. What's the definition
0: what's of truth? The definition of truth. Boy, that's... We're getting we're not some the first deep ones to ask there, that question, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Easy answer would be Christ. He is the truth, <laughs> the way, the truth, and the life. But true... Uh, what is true is in accordance with fact, right? It's in accordance with reality.
1: Yes. And you know, it's interesting. The belt of truth is the first piece of the armor of God right. that's listed in Ephesians 6. The very first piece is the belt of truth.
0: Right. And God does expect us to have the truth. There's a passage in is it Isaiah. I can't remember the, the passage, but it talks about truth has fallen in the streets. And with truth fallen in the streets righteousness can't enter in and justice and equity
1: can't get past can't get right? past
0: because truth has fallen so we're expected to know what the truth is from God right so our question is well how do we do how do we do that how do we know what's really true and what isn't true well God has created us as intellectual beings with the ability to reason and to decide between truth and falsity we see this in the real world every day a student let's just say one of our students, we, we homeschool our children and one of our kids is gonna take a math test. And they come to me, <laughs> they come to me that morning, and they say, Dad, I've got great faith. I've got great faith in believing that I'm gonna get the right answers on that test today. Well, there's going to be a determination at some point in that day of the truth versus right. untruth. Or I've falsity. had this
1: I've had this very thing happen. You know, they turn their test into me because I'm the teacher. And <laughs> Uh, They are very confident and very sure that the answers are correct, but um, there's going to be a determination, like you said, of truth versus falsity, and it's possible that the student's fantasy world may come crashing in on him or
0: her Mm -hmm. when
1: the grade is determined.
0: Child comes sobbing to dad. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I thought for sure I I did so well. Now, the opposite can also happen. The student's faith can be shaky in whether they have gotten the answers correct, and then they're pleasantly surprised that they did better than they thought. But, right, so no matter what we believe and how strongly we believe it, reality will come smacking us in the face sooner or later.
0: Because truth is in accordance with fact or reality?
1: Here's a quote that I wrote down some time ago uh, when I was reading an article by Dr. Dan Scheffler. I believe the article was called The Surprising Logic of the World. And Dr. Dan Scheffler said this in his article, reality has a way of digging in its heels. We may even define reality as that which pushes back against our private fantasy, the cliff, the ground the laws of gravity.
0: So if we just take the bible by faith, we are taking what we might call and I'm sure you've heard before and maybe you use this phrase, but taking what we might call a leap in the dark. Now, taking
1: because that's a blind faith. Just right. just take it by
0: faith. Exactly. Right, that's right. Taking a leap in the dark is foolish. We would all agree, right? And it probably isn't going to end well. That's what we call a blind faith. I'm just going to shut my eyes and believe. And not worry about reason, not worry about trying to discern anything. I've always believed this, or someone told me this, and so I'll close my eyes, leap in the dark, and just believe. Well, does God require that? God does not require a blind faith. We must distinguish between reasoned faith and blind faith. Dr. Arzma gives a very good quote on this. Reasoned faith moves forward into the unknown based upon the available evidence gained to that point. Blind faith is simply a leap in the dark. There's nothing admirable or even sane about blind faith. The Exodus narrative illustrates God's attitude on this repeatedly. He condemns the people repeatedly, not ever for their failure to shut their eyes and just take a blind leap over the cliff, but rather for failing to quell their doubts and complaints and move forward in trust in the midst of adversity, having repeatedly been eyewitnesses and participants in God's many deliverances to the then present moment. So in light of those two scriptures that we read a minute ago, Hebrews 11 and 1 Peter chapter 3, we can see that exercising faith, and using our capacity for reason are both expected of God's people. Faith is not contrary to reason. Faith is complementary to reason. We will never know it all. We will always have to proceed into the unknown, but not blindly.
1: So now let's look at three biblical examples that can help us Uh, see illustrations of this complementary relationship of faith and reason as we follow after God.
0: Yes, our first example is going to be Gideon. Gideon from the Old Testament book of Judges, Judges chapter 6 and 7. You know the story. Uh, The Midianites are terrorizing Israel, all due to Israel's disobedience to God. After a time, God calls a young man named Gideon to come and deliver his people. Gideon pushes back against God's call on him and begins to doubt, doubts that he is at all able to do such a thing as this. But then God promises to be with him that Israel will defeat the enemy with Gideon as their leader. Gideon then asks for something from God. He asks for a sign and Gideon brings some prepared food. He lays it out before uh, the, the Lord in this passage is called the Angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord touches it with his staff and this food is just burned up right in front of Gideon. So God gives him a sign. Gideon then begins to go out by night and destroy the altars to the false gods. He begins to call Israel to himself to follow him as a judge of Israel and defeat the Midianites. And then later in that chapter, Gideon asks the Lord for another sign, and that's the famous account of the dew upon the fleece of wool. And God gives him the sign that he requests.
1: Actually twice, because he Twi- put the fleece right. out once, and then he, he said, oh, wait a minute, I need to do that again. Yeah. He put the fleece
0: out again. <laughs> so then, you're right. And then, so what's the result? Then God does as he promised, and he ends up giving Gideon and, you know the story, his 300 men a miraculous victory over the massive Midianite army. So God gave Gideon some things he could touch, some things he could see, some things that he could feel. He provided physical evidence all through that account for Gideon, and obviously in that account we see the complementary relationship of faith and reason, right? Now now listen, we find Gideon mentioned again in the Bible. Guess where? In Hebrews chapter 11, which is affectionately called the Hall of Faith, the Hall of Faith, this man who asked for some evidence, this man who humbly asked God to give him something he could see and touch and feel to help his faith and go along beside of it. He needed that. God gave that to him, and he is listed with the giants of faith.
1: Our second biblical example is going to be Philip from John chapter 1. And this is my favorite part of the podcast today. Um, in this account, we see Philip, who has encountered Jesus. He is becoming a follower of Christ. And in John 1, verse 43, he finds Nathaniel. And Philip says to Nathaniel, We have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law, and the prophets also wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathanael replies with a question to Philip, can anything good be from Nazareth? And Philip says to him, come and see. Our pastor pointed out a couple years ago in one of his messages, he said this, Philip does not get bogged down in a debate with Nathanael. He wisely responds, come and see. There's so much clarity there. The simplicity of the truth is such a wonderful thing. And what a blessing when we as Christians can simply say, come and see. We don't always need long philosophical or theological discussions or arguments. Those things can have their place at times. But we simply need to be able to show people the reality. Let them come and see and touch, hear and understand for themselves Faith will come naturally when we're able to take an honest look at the reality and the confirmation in front of us, like Philip did with Nathaniel. He said, look, the best thing you can do, Nathaniel, is come and see for yourself. There's no debate or argument we're going to be able to have here. You need to come and see the evidence for yourself.
0: Yes. Our third example, we've talked about Gideon, and now we talked about Philip. Our third example is the Apostle Paul. There are many examples from the life of Paul as he brilliantly defends the truth of the gospel to skeptics and unbelievers. But let's look at one simple example. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are about to be stoned in a Jewish synagogue. So they left and they went to Lystra where God used them to heal a man who could not walk. And then the crowd begins to worship them as gods.
1: Yeah, I think that is so funny in that account. They go from about to be stoned as a reaction to their message, to about to be worshipped as a reaction to their message. The reaction to the truth uh, being given to people can certainly be from one extreme to the other.
0: Right, right. Well, let me read this little passage in Acts chapter 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard about it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing this? We also are men of the same nature as you, preaching the gospel to you to turn from these useless things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. In past generations, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness." So there's that word that phrase without witness that all is one Greek word those two words in the English language is one Greek word which means unattested. Paul seems to be saying that the character of God is not such that he would leave himself unattested in the world. The witness is right there. So that's another example. I thought about John the Baptist. John the ba- I mean John the Baptist himself. You know the story, he was sent to prison before he had his head taken off and he has some of his uh, disciples go to Jesus at that point and, and ask him, are you the expected one or something like that? Or do we look for someone else and has this time of doubt in his own mind? And what does Jesus say to him? Does Jesus say, you go tell John to believe. He just needs to have stronger faith. He says, go and report to John what you've seen, what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Again, we could, we could go on and on with these accounts. Yes, these but I hope
1: that that's given our listeners um, enough there that you can probably think of some of your own examples yes. that show this balance of faith and reason. And go back and read these these accounts that we've mentioned. We said we were going to give you three, but we gave yep, you a bonus one, a bonus there. So now you've got yep. four you can that's go back and look at. what happens when you at.
0: listen to our podcast. You just go away with more than you ever thought you were going to go away with. Yeah, yeah, this extra,
1: is extra content. Hum-
0: humility here.
1: All right, so let's move now to our uh, second part of the question we wanted to answer on today's podcast or address on the podcast. Is it right for Christians to seek scientific explanations for things that God has done, such as the flood and manna?
0: Right, the natural versus the supernatural.
1: Manna is on our minds lately here at the Biblical Chronologist. Uh, You've probably heard us talking about that on our past podcasts, and we will be talking about it more in the future, but uh, we'll use that as our example for this part of our discussion because we've had um, some talks and interactions with different listeners and different people that interact with the work here, and sometimes it's a natural reaction to say, well, okay, so you have this book that explains the scientific process behind the manna, but you're taking the miraculous out of it. You're telling me that there was a physical process, a scientific process that happened to produce the manna, but I always thought it was a miracle.
0: So did I. <laughs> I remember when I first heard this, and I had to deal with this myself. We all do, right? We, we all deal with how We've always perceived something, especially if it we, we find out later it was different from our preconceived ideas. And when I first heard that it had been discovered what manna was, that Dr. Ardsma had come to this conclusion and had figured this out, my first thought was, what? And the, We know where manna came from. It came from God. It was a miracle, and it was supernatural. That's what I've always thought. That's what I've always believed.
1: Right. So um, I hope our listeners will hang with us sure. here. yes. Because... Uh, We're not necessarily disagreeing with that idea. Of course, it did come from God, and we're going to talk more about that as we go along. But um, in our mind, we need to define our terms and really think through what exactly do we mean when we say something was a miracle or something was supernatural. So, you know, as we consider the biblical record of the manna, we see that the Bible is telling us about a very physical thing. I mean, the manna was on the ground every morning. Uh, They collected it every day except the Sabbath day. They cooked with it, right? I mean, I know what ingredients are that I cook with. They are made up of atoms and and compounds and all that stuff. It kept the multitude from starving. So we know it had caloric value.
0: Real world stuff.
1: Was this substance made out of regular atoms, like every other substance in our material world? The bodies of the Israelites processed it. Uh, So we would certainly expect that it was. It melted in the heat. It spoiled. It bred worms overnight. It had a foul odor. I mean, these are all properties that we are familiar with and we've experienced in the real
0: world. Sure, and of course there are other questions, you know, I mean, how how did it— not come on the sabbath and you know all of that definitely seems miraculous when you read it (laughs) but there are answers to these questions we can't get into all that today and we will in future episodes and also with uh, the book that's coming out but our question today is does it really take the miraculous out of it to discern how and why this substance appeared and what the substance actually was i don't think it does Manna is not something any of us have naturally experienced in our own lives, in our own experiences. We don't wake up and find it on the ground. I've never, I've gone outside and found snow on the ground, <laughs> which probably maybe is what it looked like. The Bible, Of course, calls it, it says, if you had
1: never seen snow before, it would be pretty miraculous. Sure,
0: that would look very miraculous to me. Yeah, not knowing where that came from. What is it, you know? But the Israelites, they did. they They woke up for 40 years, according to the biblical account and found this substance on the ground. And that was, in a sense, a miraculous event during a special set of circumstances at a special time and place in history. If we could replicate the exact circumstances of the Exodus encampments in 2023, which we absolutely cannot uh, today, uh, it would be very hard to gather millions of people with millions yes, and would. millions of livestock. That would be the world's the most
1: expensive experiment right. ever done.
0: <laughs> but if we could, we would in <clears throat> fact wake up and find manna on the ground, and that's that's just a fact.
1: <laughs> that's a lot to process too when right. you, when you say that. But right. if you read the book, you will understand how and why that's the case.
0: Right. Well, when you consider the explanation for how it all happened, and again, you can read the book very soon if you're interested. I I hope that you are. It shows you the reality of God's provision staring you right in the face. The truth looms larger than life at that point. Real soil, real animals, real people, real real hunger, and real manna. The natural world does not rob God of his glory. In fact, it's just the opposite. The natural belongs to God. He is behind all of it, whether he's operating according to the principles he's established in the world or whether he's temporarily suspending those principles, as best as we can currently understand them, in order to do something extraordinary, out of the ordinary. And it's all miraculous. I I love the the thought that, you know, you plant somebody from a, a plain planet somewhere out here in the universe that's all rock and bring them for an alien, bring him over here to this earth for the first time and set him down in it, it would seem like a fairy world with the birds flying in the air and the trees and and all the nature that God has made is miraculous.
1: Yes, it's incredible. It it, is incredible. uh, One of our favorite books as a family is called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl by Nate Wilson. And it's really the point of the whole book is Open your eyes and look around you at the incredible creation that you are in. And you know, just because scientists can explain it with their um, equations does not make it any less wonderful or miraculous. It
0: brings glory to God when it's seen in the proper way. It does not rob God of his glory at all to see how he works through his creation.
1: Dr. Arzma says this, the distinction between natural and supernatural is mainly made difficult because fundamentally, God is behind it all, both natural and supernatural. Nothing in the universe runs itself, not even the least electron in orbit within the least atom. God runs it all. What we call natural is simply God doing business as usual. What we call supernatural is God doing business in an extraordinary way. I think it is the case that one cannot really draw any sharp line between natural and supernatural in such a situation. The person will always be having to judge what seems to go beyond the realm of the ordinary. To the scientist, this is made somewhat easier by what he can explain by his equations, which are summaries of how God does business as usual, as best business as usual, is understood to the present time and separating between that and when the effect lies clearly outside what he can explain by his equations. And as we draw to a close on our um, discussion here, I think um, another biblical example is kind of helpful because manna is new to think about and a little bit foreign um, to our minds to think about being able to see manna or hold it in our hand. One of our daughters recently, our younger daughters, was copying down a Bible verse. It was out of Genesis 3, and it was after Noah's flood, and it was the verse that says, where God says, I have set my rainbow in the cloud. And I looked at that verse, God says, it's his rainbow. And he has said it in the cloud. But yet, we do know how to make a rainbow. And we do know how rainbows are formed in the sky. So we can explain all the science behind it. So, are rainbows natural or are they supernatural? Well, I think most people would agree that a rainbow is a natural occurrence. However, God says in Genesis that he is the one that did it. So are we robbing God? of his glory by explaining how a rainbow works? I don't think so. It seems we are more in wonder than ever. And even a simple rainbow made with a garden hose in the sunlight can inspire joy and wonder at God's amazing creation.
0: Yes, that's a very good example. Here is a another quote by Dr. Gerald Arzma in his book on Noah's Flood from 1997. Um, this, by the way, is our quote of note in our Podcast this episode. The natural and the supernatural are both there side by side. To deny either is to miss the truth. The supernatural is there that we might know that God is. The natural is there as a verifiable witness to what he has done. I just believe God is being good to us to give us a verifiable witness. The fact that we can go and find these things in history is really a blessing.
1: And find them in science.
0: And find them in science. That's right. Yes.
1: So let's wrap up our section here with one more quotation. We've given you guys a lot of things to think about this month and a lot of quotes uh, from different sources. But here's one final statement, again, by Dr. Dan Scheffler. This kind of wraps up everything that we've discussed here so far. Faith and reason, natural and supernatural. We are especially inspired in our pursuit when we wonder at the way that the intelligible system of the world exceeds the little system of concepts that we have hitherto come up with. We long to learn more, and in our longing pursue the prize of wisdom, not because we think we already know, but because we know that we do not. And this chase involves a kind of faith, implicit in every kind of science, We must trust that the undiscovered aspects of the world are nevertheless discoverable, that they are governed by coherent, intelligible principles, even when we have not yet worked it all out. And what begins in philosophical wonder must, in the end, transform into religious worship.
0: Yes, very, very good. Well, let's go into our next section. Now we're going to give you a couple of research updates which are a couple of newsletters that we hope you will go and take the time to look up at thebiblicalchronologist.org. The Biblical Chronologist Research Newsletter is the place where Dr. Ardsma first records and publishes his findings. And I believe um, Helen is going to be talking about a little bit about this in her Helen's view about his newsletters. But let me put in a plug, too. If you're not yet on Dr. Ardsma's newsletter email list, It's very easy. We encourage you to go to his website, and to the sidebar there, you can see very clearly where to click on to put your email address in so that you get an email uh, notification every time he puts out one of these PDFs on his website. But in recent weeks, Dr. Arzman has published two new issues. Volume 13, number one, is The Route of the Exodus, part two, The Encampment at Etham, where he talks about the size of the encampment, just more real-world evidence of these biblical accounts. And then volume 13, number 2, the route of the Exodus, part 3, which is the location of Elam. And here in Elam, the Bible talks about date palm trees. It's very fascinating. Very I think interesting.
1: you will be very interested to go and look this up. Exodus 15, verse 27, for example, says... Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. This relates just with what we were discussing in our main topic, being able to go back in history and verify these kind of details uh, Dr. Arzma proposes a brand new location for Elam that's never been proposed before that that correlates in with uh, the region there of Mount Sinai and the other sites that he has identified. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's very interesting. You need to read the article. Yes. Like I said, um, there were 12 springs of water, 70 date palms, and they camped there. And really good material that you can use um, with your family as you study the scriptures, and it will bring it to life for you.
0: And again, the evidence for the missing millennium just continues to build, and that's what we are showing here, and we hope that you'll take the time to look at yourself. Our next section is Aging 101, and in this series we are now on Lesson 4. And Lesson 4 is Aging is Fundamentally a vitamin deficiency disease of two previously unknown vitamins. These vitamins are MEPIA, phosphinic acid, and MEPA, methylphosphonic acid. Both of these are water-soluble vitamins. So that's just a summary of our lesson today. Let me take just a second here and review our first three lessons. Lesson one was aging is not a natural process. Rather, it is a disease process. Lesson two was life expectancies in the U.S. today, 81 for females, 76 for males. And then lesson three was aging disease is a syndrome of three distinct aging diseases. And then again today, lesson four, aging is fundamentally a vitamin deficiency disease of two previously unknown vitamins.
1: A vitamin is any of a group of organic compounds which are essential for normal growth and nutrition and are required in small quantities in the diet because they cannot be synthesized by the body. So... I think we are familiar with what vitamins are, and Dr. Ardsma's working hypothesis is that aging is fundamentally a vitamin deficiency disease of two previously unknown vitamins. So what is a vitamin deficiency? Well, it's the condition of a long-term lack of a vitamin. If you're deficient in the vitamin, you will um, have a resultant vitamin deficiency in your body. A deficiency of a vitamin may not sound like a big deal, but as we will be demonstrating in future lessons, they can be very serious and even can lead to death. One interesting feature of vitamin deficiency diseases is something that we call variable onset, and I'm just going to explain this real quickly. Um, Basically, what that means is if the person is getting a tiny little bit of the vitamin or not enough of the vitamin, but some of it, uh, then you can delay the onset of the deficiency disease. So if you withhold vitamin C altogether, the person will get scurvy within a short amount of time. If you give them a deficient amount of vitamin C, you can keep them from getting scurvy until a later time, although they will still get it. This is not the case for other types of diseases. We don't have a way to delay the onset. And this is exactly what's being seen in Genesis, where over time, the onset of the disease started happening sooner and sooner as they became more and more deficient in the vitamin. And that's just one of the parallels between the aging disease and vitamin deficiency diseases. So how do we know this? I'm, I hope our listeners are thinking this through and they're saying, well, that's an interesting claim, but why do you say that? And in this case, uh, the best thing to do for the full explanation is to go and read the book called right. Aging, Cause and Cure. Now, fortunately, we have a layperson's edition of the book available for those who don't want the 346-page uh, edition.
0: Right. Either
1: way, you can get the full book or the condensed um Simplified book, either one for free. Aging causing cure for dummies. Right. It's not called <laughs> it's, for dummies, though, because no, we not. couldn't use that brand. But that, right.
0: <laughs> but that's what it is. Like people like me who need, just give it to me, just the points, the bullet points, and uh, the, the summary. That's really what it is, the summary. But in a nutshell, it's, it's not hard to understand. This is known because, you may have heard this term, extensive mathematical modeling that has been done of the biblical life expectancy data in the scriptures, the similarity of aging to other vitamin deficiency diseases, along with results in the mouse lab. Uh, there's uh, results are coming out still today, still coming in uh, yes. in the in the mouse lab uh, here, um, along with the modeling of the actuarial life expectancy data today, along with testimonials from those supplementing these two newly discovered vitamins. So there's much evidence.
1: It's the best attested theory of aging that has ever been developed. And we really do hope you'll take time to educate yourself and find out more as we continue to give you lesson by lesson the summary of the work that's been done on aging. And of course, we always want our listeners to know uh, you can avail yourself of the anti-aging vitamins. It's very easy to go onto the website and place an order to um, begin to supplement these vitamins yourself. Now we will move into our testimonial about the anti-aging vitamins from a couple who are both 46 years old. Their names are Dale and Naomi, and they have graciously shared with us uh, their experience, and they have been supplementing the vitamins since April of 2021.
0: The testimonial says, We have both been taking the vitamins for well over a year and a half. During this time, we have noticed significant hair growth, nail growth, and improved sleep. There also seems to be more of a resilience to fighting sinus infections and other ailments. At one point, we ran out of the vitamins and had quite a flare-up of our sinuses. We also felt like our endurance was a lot less. We really feel that taking the vitamins has helped the absorption of the other herbs and vitamins that I take to be more effective. That being said, we do believe that it is God who is making the discovery of these vitamins be a blessing to our bodies so that we can go on and serve him in the strength that he is providing. We are very grateful to him for the provision of these vitamins. Okay,
1: as we draw near to the close of our podcast, we now bring to you
2: Helen's View. A Day in the Life It's wonderful to be actually in Steve and Jennifer's new sound recording studio, and it's just very exciting to see all the things that God is doing through their work here at the Biblical Chronologist. I thought you would enjoy hearing how Gerald spends his days. Gerald does not feel comfortable with adulation and praise publicly, so he shies away from me writing about how wonderful he is, which may come across from time to time in my writing. Well, it is Helen's view after all. And so here we go. This is a very typical day for Gerald. He starts his day between 6 and 6.30 a.m., regardless of how well he has slept. He eats his usual light breakfast of oat bran cereal, fresh pineapple, and water. Gerald has IBS problems, which has been a constant thorn in the flesh and a great trial for him. In order to keep track of what he eats and what happens when he eats it, he puts everything in a computer program that he wrote for himself. He controls his calories and vitamin intake this way as well. He stays slim by weighing himself once per week and adjusting his calories accordingly. Yes, he is a very disciplined person. They say opposites attract. Need I say more? More? After breakfast, he heads straight to his office, which is in our home, still in his robe and slippers. He is already what I call in deep think. He doesn't want to be distracted, even with the thought of getting dressed. He does not check his email until the evening so as to concentrate on his primary role as researcher and writer. He is a stickler for not being disturbed in the morning so he can get five to six hours of research and writing done before lunch. This is when his brain is fresh and rested. Gerald is currently researching the route of the Exodus and has made several discoveries of previously unknown sites. He hopes to eventually have the entire route mapped out and possibly write a book about it. He writes about his current research findings in his newsletter, The Biblical Chronologist, and posts them online. I will put a little plug in here. You can be notified by email each time he posts an issue by signing up here. We do not charge for the newsletter and I have the link down below in the written version of Helen's View. All of his back issues are also available by checking out the newsletter, Left Links, on the webpage biblicalchronologist.org. Lunch is at noon, which is our big meal of the day. He gets dressed before coming to eat. He eats very simply lots of fish and rice and potatoes, chicken, fresh fruits and vegetables. He loves a sweet at the end of his lunch meal, which is often my homemade pumpkin muffins or a store-bought mini pie. Just so you know, he isn't perfect. I often have several personal and business items to discuss with him during our meal. I clean up the kitchen and do the dishes as we finish up talking. After lunch, he heads down to the mouse lab in the basement to do his daily chores there. This usually takes about one hour. To give his brain a break, one can only write for so long before it becomes unproductive. He works on a construction project at the ARF campus in the afternoon. At present, we are building a second tier in my pallet room to double our pallet storage space. The pallet room is where I store all of my grains that come in via transport truck. We then rebag and sell retail to our customers all across the United States. Gerald does all the planning for these construction projects and gives me a list to purchase the items we need. Gerald always does such an amazing job on these projects. Great to have a perfectionist husband for this type of stuff. Perfectionists can also be annoying at times, especially if they are married to someone who is not. We like to get things done fast. At 3 p.m. sharp, at this time of year, we head out for our daily walk for about 40 minutes. In the summer, we walk in the evening. Of course, we never have time for a walk. It is often too cold, too rainy, or too hot, or we have too many items on our list not yet accomplished. But we take the time because we know it is important to our overall health. It is also important to our marriage, as this is our concentrated time together. The only time we don't walk is when the weather is extreme. For example, when it is below 14 degrees Fahrenheit, with wind chill, or over 100 degrees Fahrenheit with humidity. I'm totally serious. Walking releases the stress, helps us sleep better, and gives us time to once again talk about everything. Gerald has always been a great listener and communicator. He says he loves to hear me chat away about this or that or even nothing at all. He is my one and only therapist. His prices are reasonable. He is available at short notice. It is a time saver, he listens before he says anything, and he keeps everything I tell him confidential. He offers compassion and caring, which is usually what I need most, but he also is not afraid to offer concrete, wise, and practical advice. One of Gerald's many sayings is, love does what is in the other person's best interest. Sometimes my pride gets wounded, but I'm so glad he loves me enough to be honest and to challenge me to greater heights. I would not be the person I am today if it weren't for his honesty with me, and I will be internally grateful for it. I pity the person who does not have such an honest person in their life. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. After our walk, he heads back to the construction project until 5.30 p.m. when he comes in for supper. I make yeast pancakes with freshly ground flours different types of grains that I have milled earlier in the day and I use fresh organic eggs from a neighboring farm. I also make oat milk to put into the recipe. I prepare the pancake dough at lunchtime so that they have time to rise by evening. He loves these fresh cooked pancakes and wants them every night. Served with our homemade blackberry jam, alas we have left our blackberries behind at the farm. They are healthy and tasty. He often has a bowl of popcorn to finish off his supper if he has any calories left. Gerald then heads back to the office to do his planning for the next day and to answer emails. Emails come from around the world asking him questions about his research. He also answers personal emails at this time. I am always amazed at the patience and time he takes with each person that writes to him, taking the time to be an encouragement and blessing to them. He has been finalizing the manna discovery book, Bread from Heaven, The Manna Mystery Solved. Our daughter-in-law, Tamara, Caleb's wife, is working on a complicated illustration for the book, so there has been quite a bit of back-and-forth emails on that. And the usual business emails with the staff, planning future podcasts and helping with their job of answering emails if difficult research questions come up. I will often wake up to several emails from him the previous evening asking me to order various items he needs. He usually stops sometime between 8 and 9. He is brain and physically weary at this point. He comes to our room and we sit in our lazy boy chairs while I read to him for 15 or 20 minutes. I love to read aloud. We are currently reading Winston Churchill's autobiographical, My Early Years, 1874 to 1894, which was prompted by watching the movie The Darkest Hour, which is probably our most favorite movie ever. We plan on reading all books Churchill has written about his life. His command of the English language is really something, and his humor often makes us laugh out loud. After reading, we usually watch something online for about an hour. It might take us several nights to finish a movie. I research good movies ahead of time and try to watch a little bit of it before deciding if we will watch it. I have an ongoing list on my nightstand. I made up this joke. Question, how do you make a TV season or show last for a lifetime? Answer, fall asleep during the first five minutes, so you have to start at the beginning the next night. At 10.30 sharp, I head to bed. Jerry does his evening house check and lock up and comes to bed. Sleep comes quickly for both of us. Evangelist Henry Varley said, The world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. Gerald, by the grace of God, wants to be that man. It's always wonderful to chat with you and I look forward to talking to you again soon. We sure would love
1: to hear from you, our listeners, from time to time, if you have thoughts or questions you want to share with us. Um, In fact, we've gathered together just a few recent comments to share here at the end today.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to share a few things here. We had uh, one gentleman who uh, wrote to us and said, I'm looking forward to more, quote, hard facts in future podcasts showing why Mount Yeraham is the true Mount Sinai. That's from a Christian school teacher who uh, who wrote in.
1: We had a listener from Arizona who is a, a sweet lady um, who keeps in touch with us. She commented that she enjoys the podcast format over a video format, and she enjoys listening to it on her phone. And she said, um, I had to kind of laugh when you said your parents had moved to a place inside the work facility just like a scientist would like near his work, (laughs) saves time and energy getting to work. And you're exactly right
0: about that. Yes. Here's another comment from a pastor who has said, though I appreciate what Arzma is trying to do, and I find it interesting that he has tried to reproduce manna, I feel that he is removing some of the miraculous elements. And then he had other questions. And then he said, but I do enjoy reading your stuff. And I have, I have enjoyed dialoguing a bit with this pastor from the East Coast. And then let me give one more here. Uh, this is a tongue-in-cheek comment from someone who's a friend of ours from church. He, You know who you are after <laughs> I read this comment. But this gentleman said, Mount Sinai couldn't have been a low-lying mountain because that's not the mountain Charlton Heston went up. I saw it with my own <laughs> eyes. We've all seen it. So uh, anyhow, oh, yes. again, you know who you are.
1: Hey, thank you for joining us today. I hope the discussion has been helpful for you and have a blessed month. We'll see you.
0: Look forward to seeing you next month in
1: April.